Hey there, this is Kent Rowdy at USH Med Student. I have two medical students with me today. How about if we start with some introductions? Let's start with the almost star of the show, Carl. <laughs> Hi, my name is Carl Ketchum. I'm a third year medical student. Um, yeah, I've really had a good time here, actually. So. End of your third week, right? Yep, end of the third week. I've learned a ton, and I'm having a great time. And this time tomorrow, you'll be co-star on a podcast. Sure will. It'll be about pandas and pans and cans, not the bears. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And somehow Discord was on while <laughs> I was uh, talking to you, and you heard some uh, sounds in the background. I think that's off now. Sorry about that. Yeah, You're pandas good. and cans, and maybe uh, how we choose our study population. Definitely. Uh, that should be fun. And the star of today's show, Yuri. Hi. Uh, how about if you introduce yourself, please? Okay. My name is Yuri Anderson. I'm also a third year, and this is my third week at the behavioral health um, rotation with Dr. Roundy and also with Dr. Thomas, who works at the pediatrics unit. Now, you don't have to confirm this, but I understand that I'm by far your favorite attending. Is that correct? Totally. 100%. 150%. Although I'm pretty sure that Dr. Thomas is a lot cooler than I am. So if you, uh, if any pre-med students or other medical students are listening to this, I think she has a great opportunity and a great rotation over there. Uh, one of our uh, relatively new hires here at the Utah State Hospital, and we think a great deal of her. Uh, Yuri, tell me a little bit more about yourself. Usually at the start of the show, we ask them to tell us uh, what direction they're heading in medicine and a little bit about the topic they chose and why. Do you mind doing that? Sure. So um, I am originally from Japan, um, and I actually studied international relations and religion in college. And so this topic has been a wonderful. I spent a lot of time, but I also had a lot of fun doing it because um, today's topic is about meditation and mindfulness-based therapy uh, for patients with anxiety. And um, yeah, so this has been interesting because I don't know if um, a lot of you or many of you know this, but mindfulness comes from an Eastern tradition, um, particularly from a Buddhist tradition. Um, so that sort of caught my eye, and from there, it's been really interesting to sort of bridge the gap between like religious practices and taking some of that component into medicine, and particularly in the Western tradition of um, evidence-based medicine. So it's been an amazing opportunity to learn about this. So thank you, Dr. Roundy. Oh, well, you're very welcome that you uh, got to do this extra assignment. Um, I, wanna, I want you to tell us where you're going in medicine as well. I don't remember okay. hearing you tell me that, but I could have missed it. No, I totally <laughs> forgot about that part. Um, so I, <laughs> I was afraid I'd missed it. <laughs> I am going into family medicine, general practitioner. Um, and so this will be a really good um, opportunity for me to learn about anxiety and the treatments of anxiety because this is um, a somewhat a prevalent um, disorder that we see in the general population so yeah and I still have discord beeping at me for some reason so we're trying it again I quit it in the task bar and I'm hoping um, to hear one other thing about uh, internal or uh, family medicine where you're headed how do you hope to use meditation in family medicine? That's a really great question. Um, because all, as we know, family medicine practice, they usually only have 15 minute blocks per patient. 
Um, so I'm actually curious to know how CBT is being used, if at all, with direct patient interactions because um, so far the family physician that I've been with, I know that she's you know, refer, made referrals to psychiatrists and psychologists and therapists to mm-hmm. do that part of work. But I'm wondering if there are any family medicine practitioners who actually takes CBT or mindfulness-based therapies into their own practice. Mm. Um, so I'm actually not 100% sure how to answer that question. I think I have a few of those answers, but I, that's a pretty big topic and maybe one we can pick up another time. Mm-hmm. Should you come back for a fourth year rotation, we'll pick that one up. How does that sound? Awesome. All right, so I want to start off with some high-yield shelf shelf information. Um, Most of the information that we looked at regarding um, meditation and mindfulness-based practices, and and we're going to talk about this lumpy group of all sorts of different kinds of things that get thrown in there. Um, I'm under the impression that most of the studies we looked at looked at a couple of different things in a lot of different groups. So Mm -hmm. depression in people with cancer, stress in students, anxiety in students, uh, stress in expecting mothers who are living in poverty, right? All these really specific groups. There Mm -hmm. were, I want to say 12 or 15,000 studies looking, or papers, I don't know if they were studies, but papers looking at mindfulness-based practices. Mm -hmm. And uh, lots of different ways that was that those practices were looked at and I think what we decided to do or what you decided to do I should say is kind of look mostly at two things one generalized anxiety disorder and the other uh, major depressive disorder we have tackled these topics before but we want to repeat those for people that uh, are listening to this podcast for the first time so uh, the diagnosis of GAD who's on that one um. I can do it. Uh, So GAD uh, is basically the persistent excessive anxiety about many aspects of their daily lives. Um, They often uh, have somatic symptoms including uh, fatigue and muscle tension. Uh, Helpful uh, mnemonic is worry warts, which is wound up or worn out, absent-minded, restless, tense, and sleepless. Uh, The DSM-5 has it listed as excessive anxiety or worry about uh, various daily events for more than six months, difficulty controlling that worry, and it's also associated with uh, three or more of the following symptoms, restlessness, fatigue, impaired cognition, irritability, muscle tension, and insomnia. Um, Symptoms are not caused by the direct effects of a substance or another mental disorder or medical condition and symptoms cause significant social or occupational dysfunction. For treatment, it's CBT, SSRIs, or SNRIs. Uh, and? And? Buspar. Buspar. Right, so we looked, at the, yes, uh, yes. we looked at the FDA indications for this, and there are a couple of SSRIs. I think, uh, I think we mentioned that Paxil, also known as paroxetine, has the FDA indication. And Prozac and sertraline do not have the FDA indication. Um, I did look up the FDA indication for Effexor, which is venlafaxine, and for Cymbalta, which is duloxetine. And both of those two have the GAD indication as well. I do want to go back to two things um, on the diagnosis. I I really like the way you described that. Um, But just remember that there needs to be six months 
with, uh, what is it, most days where the mm -hmm. symptoms are present. Most days. And in children, instead of having those three symptoms of restlessness, fatigue, impaired concentration, irritability, muscle tension, insomnia, it, it only has to be one of those, right? And I, I think those were the only things I would add to what you, what you mentioned. So uh, at least one SSRI, at least two SNRIs, CBT for sure is uh, a standard of care. And I think we're going to see if mindfulness is or isn't a possible treatment for anxiety as we go through this. And in comparison to generalized anxiety disorder, we have major depressive disorder. And yeah, so I maybe, think we're gonna spend relatively less time on this. We're gonna go through two mnemonics, I think. Cool, yeah, no, totally doable. So the mnemonics is uh, SIG-E caps, which is sleep, interests, uh, guilt, energy, concentration, appetite, psychomotor retardation and suicidal ideation and dice gaps is uh dice's gaps i think dice's gaps i think yes, there's an s on dice's yes yeah. dice's gaps is uh d or i must be present for the diagnosis so that's depressed mood or interest loss then uh concentration energy sleep guilt appetite psychomotor agitation or retardation and suicidal ideation now, um, I think that's the important, that's one of the reasons why we started mentioning the DICE's gaps a little bit more is because SIGI CAPS leaves out one important uh, diagnostic criteria, which is subjective depression, right? I, I do want to go back, I'm sorry, I want to go back to GAD. We mentioned treatments for generalized anxiety disorder. There's also uh, another class of medications that have an FDA approval for treatment of generalized anxiety disorder. And Alprazolam is a member of that class, so Xanax. Um, on the street, uh, at least a decade or so ago, they were called Zanzibars, I think. Uh, <laughs> uh, bars, they're sometimes simply referred to. And I'm not sure I've ever seen a boxed warning. I I've never noticed this before, maybe it's just me not paying attention, but one of the warnings in the boxed warning is death with opioids, one is death with mis misuse, and the other is death from withdrawal. And um, I've never quite seen death so, uh, prominently displayed in any package insert. If you go back to our uh, podcast on benzodiazepines, I think you know that my general feeling is these are best avoided if, if any other treatment can be used. And uh, um, of course, that's not me speaking as a provider to anybody who may be listening for medical advice. I just better throw that out there. But overall, they're very difficult to use. And while uh, we're using this podcast as a way to teach medical students, any way you can find to use treatments outside of benzodiazepines, I think you're going to find that your practice is more rewarding and that your patients are helped greater overall. Uh, did I did I get out of that little jam I was in there for a minute? You guys are smiling. All right, Yuri, so I, I said, hey, before you do this podcast, I would like you to go back and look at the podcast we've done before so that you don't duplicate ground. You listened to at least two podcasts. You want to tell me just very briefly about those? Yeah, so uh, one of the first ones that I listened to was Yoga for PTSD um, because mindfulness and yoga practices, they kind of go hand in hand. And some of the prep or papers that I read, they actually did both, like yoga and M MBT and how that affected um, the conditions that they were studying. Um, but according to the podcast, um, unfortunately, yoga <laughs> studies have shown that it was not an effective therapy. I believe it wasn't even um, an effective therapy adjunctively, not monotherapy 
I, I think Miles, who uh, I still uh, think of Miles fondly, if you, either of you know Miles, uh, I think Miles would say the data isn't there yet. We haven't had the right studies. Mm -hmm. But to this point, we don't have data showing that yoga helps with PTSD specifically. Mm -hmm. And I think at the end of that podcast, um, I said, Miles, you still really want this to be true, don't you? <laughs> I heard a little reluctance in his voice when he was concluding. <laughs> I thought this podcast would be similar to that. I think it's going to be a little bit different. Mm -hmm. The next podcast you listened to was Generalized Anxiety Disorder Recognition and Treatment. Mm -hmm. I think I already mentioned benzos. Uh, I have a lot of hesitation with those and watch out for that in general practice. I don't know if there were other highlights from that uh, JD podcast you'd want to point out. I think that was the two things that I got out of the JD, except for all the really helpful um, information to know for the shelf. That was a really good uh, review for the shelf, I thought, the first half of it. I, th I actually thought that was one of our better shelf review yeah, kind of definitely. podcasts. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned a few minutes ago that uh, the Buddhist tradition includes uh, mindfulness as a way to be spiritually healthy, I think is maybe the best way I could conceptualize that. There, that those um, practices have been perhaps culturally appropriated, is that a Maybe that's an, I don't know if that's the right way to say that or not at the moment, but they've been taken and you know, I, th I think in America we're always trying to steal the best ideas from wherever we can find them, right? Um, and it's now included in a number of therapies. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, your notes suggested that dialectic behavioral therapy, which was, if you listen to Marsha Linehan, she says it's the clash between the Eastern philosophies and the Western philosophies. Mm -hmm. um, acceptance and uh, com let's see ACT acceptance and commitment therapy mm -hmm. um, a lot of different Western philosophies or therapies that have emerged over the last 20 or 30 years have focused on acceptance of the human condition as part of a way of management right um, but I think when we look very specifically at mindfulness itself there are a couple of therapies and I'd like you to perhaps differentiate between those two therapies. And I have the letters MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, and MBCT, Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy. Talk to me about those two therapies and the distinctions between those, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, so before I get into that, I think I wanted to go back and say, I personally think that it's a cultural appreciation instead of an appropriation, appreciation. Um, just because I think you know, Buddhist tradition and the mindfulness practices um, in the Buddhist setting, it wasn't used for health conscious, um, I guess, therapies. It was not a therapy at all. It's just a thing that uh, monks used to do. And then the Western scientists came along and saw that, oh, wait, these monks have really good health, they have really good mental capacity, and they started like doing research on it and that's when the appreciation yeah appreciation was brought over and took some of the components of mindfulness practices in incorporated into therapies and so I personally think it's an appreciation instead of an appropriation. I'm so. glad to hear that because suddenly I was in that very awkward moment of thinking, <laughs> oh my goodness, 
I've really stepped in it. <laughs> I think you. I think that that I just wanted to make sure that the listeners know. Per, it's just my personal opinion. Yeah. Um, there might be some other people that would say otherwise, but um, personally, I think that there is a little distinction there. Um, and going back to your question about yeah. MBSR, which is mindfulness-based stress reduction, and secondly, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy (MBCT). Um, so the difference between the two, I don't know if I could say this properly, but they originated sort of um, consecutively, I would say. Um, MBSR seems to come first. Um, I noted down who came up with it. Um, yeah, it seems like we see. saw that, and I don't remember where that is. But I want to. I think what you're saying, though, is that MBSR was kind of the first step, mm -hmm. and then the cognitive therapist pulled the mindfulness into cognitive therapy. Correct. I, okay. I think that's a really good way to think about it. Um, so mindfulness sort of gets incorporated in MBSR, or MBSR would be sort of like the standalone for MBT, or mm -hmm. mindfulness-based therapy, mm -hmm. and then um, MBCT incorporates mindfulness as part of, in, sort of injects it as part of the practice or the therapy. Now the second part of this that I think would be helpful to define is the difference between focused attention meditation and open monitoring meditation. Is that something that you can tackle at this part of the podcast? Yeah, I'd love to. So there are two types of meditation, as Dr. Randy just said. Focused attention um, uses, it, it incorporates some object to attend to so that you can pay attention to that object while, um, in order for the mind to not wander. Whereas open monitoring is um, mindfulness practice where you're being aware of that moment without focusing on a particular object. And just sort of sprinkle my religious studies in here. Um, in the Tibetan Buddhist practice, focused attention is uh, something that they practice. Um, so you've seen all these like mandalas, sand mandalas and diamond mandalas. Um, those are focused attention mandalas because you look at a particular mandala and then you do your prayers or your mindfulness practice. Whereas um, Zen Buddhism, which originated in Japan, they do more of the open monitoring where you just sit down, sometimes close your eyes, sometimes not close your eyes, but you're cross-legged or you do a zazen, you sit with your folded legs, and then you just sit where you don't focus on any particular thing or any particular sound. You're just focused on being there. I didn't see, by the way, thank you, I didn't see any distinction in the articles that I read about which of the types of meditation would have been used within these types of programs. Was that something that came up that you saw? No, I didn't see a lot of distinction either. It seems like a lot of the therapies sort of mixed and matched the two. I, I might have grumbled about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, ne the next question, and I, I, maybe not a question, um, I think you made a note, and I think this is worth pointing out, where MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, it is all about, only about uh, meditation. Mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is a cognitive therapy based on meditation. It's not a cognitive therapy 
that has mindfulness in it. It's mindfulness that has cognitive therapy in it. Does that sound right? Yes. And then the other things that we talked about, like DBT and ACT, have components of mindfulness within a set of therapies that would be used towards some sort of goal or, or aim. Mm -hmm. Does that sound right? Yeah. Okay. Um, and they could be either focused attention or open monitoring. And when we were taking um, one of the group sessions, uh, CBT group sessions here in the adult unit, um, one of the therapists brought up box meditation where she drew a box on the chalkboard and then you just follow the box and do um, breathing technique as a meditative practice. And so that would be a focused attention. And she also mentioned that this is something that she uses in the pediatrics unit because the kids have a hard time just, you know, counting is one of them. And then like controlling their breath is a little bit harder for them. So when they have a visual object to follow, it's easier for them to do. Some sort of association. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness is easy for Western society people. Is that a is statement or a question? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> you have a comment that absolutely blew me away. Um, a review of 11 laboratory studies with healthy adults found that most people choose to do mundane tasks or, or even receive mild electric shocks rather than being left alone with their own thoughts. Yeah, that was really cool. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> like, really? Okay. That's a great alternative. <laughs> yeah, I, I did maybe mention once before that, Yuri, uh, we have a, an assignment with the songs, right? And mm -hmm. I think I jokingly mentioned that Yuri was a sadist at heart. And uh, when I mentioned that, when she mentions that shocking people is cool, I, I know I guessed <laughs> that right. <laughs> um, tell me about, mindfulness is not something you do once you master and it's over. Tell me about that. Yeah, so there was a really great piece of paper that was posted on one of the walls in the pediatric unit it says you take baths every day you do the same with meditation because some people say that yeah meditation doesn't work well if you only try it once it's not gonna work just like you take you don't take baths once to be clean you have to take baths or showers every day or every other day to keep yourself clean so in order to keep your mind clean you also have to practice this these meditation practices you know um, in a repeated manner so it's like exercise mm -hmm. hmm. practice. practice I mean that's what they call it a practice right? <laughs> like, yeah it's that's the same true. with medicine it's it's practice it's, right? uh, boy I hope it's more using the tools to address the problem you see in front of you than practice but I think unfortunately there is some learning curve with it right I want to move forward a little bit mm -hmm. rather than get caught on practice because that, that would catch me up <laughs> say something I regret a, a great deal later um, I want to go to a an article that you mentioned that talked about focused attention and some of the um, changes in the hippocampus. Can you tell me a little bit more about that study? Yeah, so it looked at the brain scan of, um, I think, 70 
people. I'm trying to find where that was. Um, and they showed um, difference in the hippocampus in the gray, was it the gray matter? Mm -hmm. I can't really it find looks that like article. it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, there was some difference before and after the mindfulness training in the gray matter, um, which kind of show that, um, you know, the memory, emotional regulation, and self-reference processing, that sort of um, part of the brain is being stimulated uh, with mindfulness training. And, and perspective taking, I think. And I thought okay. that was very fascinating as well because there's all of these things that seem to change. Mm -hmm. um, the next study that you mentioned or that you went through, and we're going to talk about, I think, the quality of studies in a little bit, right? We're going to yeah. kind of, uh, I'm going to jump on my bandwagon and beat the ground with a stick or something. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, but the next one you mentioned was uh, the, the original MBSR course developed by John Kabat-Zinn in 79 right. at University yeah. of Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. I, I think this is kind of the start of moving these uh, mindfulness techniques into Western medicine. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so this mindfulness-based stress reduction that was developed um, it was incorporated into an eight-week program where there's a 2.5 to 3.5 hour session per week uh, consisting of 10 to 20 participants and they it, the MBSR instructions would include didactic instructions like phys physiology of stress and how to do um, mindfulness practices and for this particular um, practice they mostly did a seated upright position but mindfulness can be practiced while walking slowly or um, doing yoga postures he's so popular today stop <laughs> the noise today apparently I'm so sorry guys That's I've got no that problem. quieted now um, I would have a tough time based on the descriptions you provided, and I remember reading through these, and admittedly my eyes glazed just a little bit as I tried to understand the difference between uh, MBSR and MBCT. Mm -hmm. Can you help me understand the differences? Because it looks like Siegel, Teasdale, and Williams, you've got a note here, yeah. about them maybe being the first group to go from MBSR to MBCT. Yeah, so I think how I think about it, and I should have done a little bit more research on the differentiation between MBSR and the CBT. Maybe I should have too. <laughs> <Sorry>, guys. <laughs> um, next next, next time. We'll, we'll get it next time. Yeah. yeah. Um, but from what I see, this very first implementation of mindfulness therapy as a therapy is the mindfulness based stress reduction. And what it seems like is they sort of took. The practice as they saw monks do it and then they're like oh yeah I think this is a good idea let's try it and they did that in an eight-week program um, so I don't know how much like psychology in terms of science is incorporated as part of this practice but I know that for the mindfulness CBT that includes a lot of psychology as part of the practice um, so I, that's how I see the difference. It, and I do think one of the things that maybe is is one of the important distinctions or meanings out of this 
might be that a number of the articles that we could have looked at, and there were thousands of articles we could have looked at, right? A lot of those articles talked about community implementation in a sense that this is not a, it's not like you would have to go to school for eight to 12 years to be able to lead a group on mindfulness. Yeah, so a couple of the articles I read actually did point out that the success of um, these therapies also um, is, it's also due to the instructors if they actually got a lot of training, little training, where did they train, where did they get their certificate, if they even have a certificate. So So it does require more training than I think I understood. But maybe not for the MBC. So the MBCT, I'm under the impression, might be a more trained kind of therapy. That's my understanding, too. And then the MBSR would be if you are trained by somebody who knows how to be mindful mm-hmm. and well-trained, yeah. that would make the difference. I think I think you're right. But and it's kind of like the yoga instruction as mm-hmm. well. Like um, There's different schools of yoga, and then depending on the school of yoga, um, you can get a very easy instructor certificate. And then there are some very intense yoga courses where it takes like a whole six months of training. So I don't know what what the certificates are like for MBCT training or MBSR training. Uh-huh. Maybe that's another podcast Maybe that's topic. another podcast too. But that's my understanding. It seems like um, overall when we look at the out, overall outcomes, it feels like the outcomes for anxiety might be somewhat better than they are for depression. And I think the studies that you have next talk about that. So let's go ahead and move to those. Um, you mentioned the very specific populations that this has been used in. I mean, this is, I, I spoke to this a little bit earlier, but uh, do you want to add to that? Let's see. So there was female athletes, math teachers, graduate students, nursing students, patients going through hemodialysis, and I thought the funny one was the sexual desire in men consulting in clinical sexology. Sexcology. I don't even know what that means. I'm sorry, I didn't look at it. Okay. In all all fairness, I'm still a little bit stuck on whether I would want to be alone with my thoughts or shocked um, as well. So let me catch up here and uh, we'll skip right ahead to uh, the effect of mindfulness meditation training on biological acute stress response in generalized uh, anxiety disorder. Now, I was was intrigued by this... um, for a couple of different reasons. Would you mind describing what they did in this study? Yeah, so this is a study that was done in 2017 on 70, 70 adults that was diagnosed with GAD. Um, and they did a, um, they looked at biomarkers uh, before and after an eight week MBSR program. And then they compared the Trier Social Stress Test score. So it's, a T, it's called TSST and it's an eight minute um, public speaking task. Um, and then they do a subsequent five minutes mental arrhythmic task of serial subtraction and see their stress level. Um, <laughs> and then in this study, they calculated the under the curve concentrations for um, ACTH and pro-inflammatory cytokines such as IL-6, IL-1, and TNF-alpha. So they get people that are terrified Mm-hmm. of public speaking yep. and have them speak in public mm-hmm. and then they make them do math yeah. 
And while that's going on, they have a catheter in place, and they are taking blood at various times before the task and after the task. Sounds like fun. It sounds like somebody who'd rather be in a study than be alone with their thoughts. I'm just saying. <laughs> That's true. Um, and tell me what the results were. Yes. So the results show that MBSR participants had a significantly greater reduction in ACTH under the curve, uh, under area under the con- curve concentration, uh, compared to the control. And then also, individuals in the MBSR group had a greater drop in the pro-inflammatory cytokines during a stress task. So that is some physical evidence. There is, uh, what is it that Miles, the book Miles keeps trying to get me to read? The Body Tells the Score? Is that the name of the book? I think so. And is that the one you read? or That was the one somebody was talking about today, this too. This morning, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so so maybe there is a mind-body link. Is that what you're trying to say, Yuri? Possibly. Okay, Possibly. fair enough. I want to go to, um, we're going to go through a couple of more articles. I'm going to skip the next one, which is the meta-analysis. I want to come back to that one if I can. And I'm going to go to the randomized control trial of mindfulness meditation for generalized anxiety disorder, effects on anxiety and stress activity. Now, this is Dr. Hodge, Hodge, H-O-G-E. This is in 2013. and this is blinded. I just want to point that out before you start talking about this study. This is a study that was blinded. What they did is they found the participants in the trial and they were evaluated by uh, psychiatrist clinicians called independent examiners that had nothing to do with the study. And then the two different groups were put into the two different arms. Pick it up from there if you would for me. So after that, um, I'm blanking. Let me, let me jump in and correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I probably don't have it fully right. Um, so what, what happened then is they did a number of tests. Well, they, they put people into, they, they tested people mm-hmm. with a number of different scales. They used the Hamilton Anxiety Scale. Right. They used the CGI, the Clinical Global Impression Scale, um, both the Severity Scale and the Improvement Scale. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> They used the Beck Anxiety Inventory Scale. They used the Trier Social Stress Scale that we talked about just a few minutes ago. And then they also had a number of other outcomes that they didn't talk about in the conclusions. It was probably one of the reasons why I, um, I'm not thrilled about this study, but I think it, it's helpful and informative. After they, after they did the testing, they put people into two different groups. One was the group that had the mindfulness-based stress reduction program The other one was stress management education. Now, what I understand, and I couldn't find a lot on stress management education, but apparently there was a guy named Dusik, D-U-S-E-K, who wanted to be able to have a reasonable control arm for his studies. Uh, So instead of having a wait list, he put people in an education group, a psychoeducation group, so to speak, and had that compared to the active arm. Now, I, I think what's interesting to me is when we were talking about the MBCT, it seems to me that part of MBCT is psychoeducation, right? It's about the physiology of anxiety and those kinds of things. And so it feels like the difference between stress management education and uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction might simply be that one component of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Does that... Yeah, I think you're right. Sound reasonable? Or maybe we're just making stuff up. I don't know. I didn't find a lot on it. Um, So after they put people in the two different groups, 
Um, they did eight weeks of treatment? Yeah. It was eight weeks, yeah. Eight weeks, and then they had everybody come back and they filled out the scores. Mm-hmm. I do have a little bit of heartburn about this because they found one score, no difference, right? And that was the HAMA. HAMAS, yeah. Yeah, so the Hamilton Anxiety Rating Scale, HAMA is what we commonly call that. No difference between stress management education and uh, MBSR. Correct. But they also said, but we have three other measures that show that it does make a difference. And I started looking through the article and there were a couple of other things that made me a little bit uh, nervous about the way that this was done, right? So they had a modified intention to treat protocol, which I think was a change from the original protocol. And I think part of the reason for that is because they had a whole bunch of data that went lost or didn't get done. So they had 80 total patients and 10 of those patients didn't end up having, I want to say, uh, Beck anxiety inventory skills done. And so almost, what, 15% of the data is gone, lost, right? And so um, instead of throwing out that, they included it in the data. They didn't say what would have happened if we... You know, they, they, I don't know that they managed that a really great way. I also didn't see, and this is something that I really struggle with, right? If you, uh, p-value says, if you do this one test, what are the odds that you looking for this one thing is happening by chance rather than uh, really an association, right? But that p-value doesn't hold up if you're testing a lot of different variables, you're going to find in, find one eventually. And I don't think they were testing just four variables. And I also am not sure that this study, and we're going to come to this later, I'm not sure this study registered, right? I'm not sure this is one of the, um, like, clinicaltrials.gov, because I didn't see that in the language. Mm-hmm. And so there there are things about this trial that make me think, okay, there's there's maybe something here, but I don't know entirely what it is. I don't know if there's been a study about a waiting list and how that might compare to just simply stress management education, right? We don't know if the comparator arm, at least I I don't have a good sense if the comparator arm is truly like a placebo arm or if it's an active arm, it it seems very unknown to me. And and there wasn't a comment that I caught in the article about what it means to compare to that. So even though there's some evidence here that it does help with anxiety, I I think this is a great example of most of the quality of articles that we were looking at, right? it's a great start, but I'm not sure it's where we quite hang our hat yet. Yeah. Now with, oh, go ahead. Oh, so I'm not going to jump into other studies yet, but one other meta-analysis did conclude that there needs to be more quality data collection that needs to happen in order to conclude um, how and if, and yeah, how and if uh, the effectiveness of Mindfulness, mindfulness-based therapies actually work on GAD. So I think that is actually the article that I shared with you, right? Mm-hmm. There's another article, and I, I do actually want to jump to the meta-analysis for, I, I think, rather than talk about more articles about anxiety and depression, mm-hmm. what I'd like to do is kind of jump to the meta-analysis about those, and then maybe go to what does the future look like, because I really am intrigued by that, and I don't I don't want to go too far over the hour mark, if that's okay. Yeah, perfect. So, so one of the uh, meta-analysis articles that you put in was from 2019. And this was the article that said, hey, 
we looked through World of Science. Um, this was use of meditation and CBT for the treatment of depression and anxiety in students, a systematic review and meta-analysis, right? So this wasn't a, a broad meta-analysis, but I think this even spoke to some of the difficulties we saw in the meta-analysis that we looked at. So in this one, they had 34 interventional studies that they pulled out from roughly 188 articles. Now in their uh, methods, what they said was, we're going to look at World of Science and PubMed and CINAHL, CINAHL, I don't know how that said, and Google Scholar, and um, we're going to check Twitter and whatever else, right? And then all they did was talked about World of Science articles. Yeah. So I don't know that they actually looked anywhere but that. And so we, we have 34 articles, but I don't know how broad that is. And then I think there were also some other problems with it. So when you look at the articles that they included in the mix, they included mindfulness, they included uh, like I think what would be MBSR and MBCT, and then they had yoga, and it seems like this might have been the one that had exercise as well, but I can't remember. And it feels like when you looked at the graph, yoga, sorry Miles, still doesn't seem to treat anything yet, <laughs> but maybe mindfulness has a better effect size. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that even like this article didn't do a great job getting this there. Yeah, I thought this article was a really fun read. Not necessarily, like, it's not going to help us prove anything, but um, if anybody's interested in what met uh, meditation-based therapy is and how it's used. I think this is a good like introductory. Did a good article. intro. Yeah. I thought there were a couple that were. I want to go to the 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 article I shared with you next, right? Oh, the other thing I wanted to point out on that uh, student article was uh, the differences in effect size. Right? You have a comment that medium duration, five to eight weeks, seem to have the best effect on improving mental health in students. But the other thing that kept coming out was was comments like it has a small but totally relevant effect size, right? If, if that doesn't mean I'm trying to find an outcome, I don't know what says that, right? So I, right. I, I have a lot of hesitancy about this one. Uh, so let's go ahead and, I, is it the, it's uh, Gallant, Gallant? What was the name of the, the article that I shared with you, do you remember? Is it the Galante Mindfulness-based yes. programs for mental health promotion in adults in non-clinical settings? Is that the one? Uh, so that was one of them, and then there was also a uh, there was also a meta-analysis, and clearly I don't have my notes in the right order now. Can you bell me out? I'm trying to find it in my notes too. Um, I think I can speak to it just generally, though. Um, so, well, before we go there, I, I, I think we can comment just very briefly on a couple of other articles. Um, like the providing mindfulness meditation for patients with depression and anxiety in a community pharmacy, a pilot study, right? It was cute. It was a very cute study. <laughs> <laughs> I think it only had 12 people. <laughs> and okay, it happened at the pharmacy. I, from a pharmacist? Yes. I didn't understand, I didn't understand this. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't understand why this was the direction that a pharmacist was going. And I, do, I don't know if that's because um, our pharmacists are quite often now just filling pills and checking the numbers on things, right? And making sure that the right pill is in the right bottle before it's handed out. Or if this is a pharmacist that kind of has a 
desire to be a Zen master. I don't know. So, I cute. I thought it was a very cute study. Yes, um, I think when I was looking at it, I was just fascinated by how creative some people were with incorporating uh, mindfulness training in in medicine, and I wouldn't have guessed that a pharmacist would be part of it. And I thought, oh, hey, well, that's cool. I think that's probably why I had the question earlier about my, my feeling is MBSR could be more ubiquitous, right? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't necessarily have to have even a social worker in a community clinic. I think my, my impression is that it can be very difficult to get uh, qualified staff in a community clinic that will stay there over a long period of time. And I'm, I suspect that a, a well-trained not social worker, maybe social work bachelor's person would be able to step into an area along those lines and provide therapy that might help with anxiety and stress and maybe even somewhat with depression. And I think that's the kind of article that says maybe we should look at this more. Yeah. The other, the other thing that I think, while I'm railing on the articles, I think even the article that got published in the Green Journal, so the Green Journal is the flagship journal for the American, for the American Psychiatric Association, the American Journal of Psychiatry, the AJP. And uh, let's go back to 1992, Mm -hmm. a long ways back. Yuri was only, what, 18 at that time? No comment. (laughs) I'm 100 years old, actually. I look a little younger. And uh, they had 22 participants, and they said, guess what? We did mindfulness and every single person got well. And not only that, the people that we didn't put in the study, everybody got well that was doing the same thing that we were doing with the people that we did all the research on. Everybody gets well. Mm-hmm. Should I have been skeptical of 20 out of 22 people having miraculous recoveries? No, never. Never. Okay. Miracles happen, <laughs> happen all the time. So I, so I was obviously a little yeah. bit skeptical. This was a, again another unblinded study, yep. uh, where we had um, how people were chosen to go into the study and not chosen to go in. Out of apparently a lot of people that that screened for the study, um, there were a lot of red flags in that study for me. Yeah, and I think that was really the common theme throughout this whole research was that all the men if not all, most of the meta-analysis that we read did conclude with the fact that there is very low-quality studies that are studying very specific groups of people. And so there's no general overall study that can say, okay, we did a very big randomized control trial. Um, For all comers. Right. Blinded mm-hmm. to treat anxiety. Right. Or panic attack right there were so many variables the the numbers were so small yeah I did like I did like the uh, meta-analysis that I sent you because I think what they said I I really liked the language at the end of that and I don't know if I can find that right now yeah do you have it Yeah. yeah so in quotes it says compared with taking no action MB, MBPs, mindfulness-based programs of the included studies promote mental health in non-clinical settings, but given the heterogeneity between studies, the findings do not support generalization of MBP effects across every setting. MBPs may have specific effects on some common mental health symptoms, 
Other preventative interventions may be equally effective. Implementation of NVPs in non-clinical settings should be partnered with thorough research to confirm findings and learn which settings are most likely to benefit. Yeah, and I, I thought that was really well said. In other words, my take home from this is if you find a really well-written article that speaks to treatment of anxiety with a mindfulness-based approach for a specific population, I think that's as reliable at, at, the, at the moment as is, hey, MVPs work, mm -hmm. right? I think that's the best data for that situation. Having said that, I think they also concluded that MVPs are better than nothing. There seems to be good evidence for that according to the meta-analysis, right? That if you're treating a general condition, even though there are <clears throat> lots of flaws on this picture, mm -hmm. MBPs appear to be about as good as any other intervention and better than no intervention. Correct. Does that sound about how we felt like the best articles concluded? Yeah, I, definitely. I think that's a really great conclusion. Okay. So... MBPs probably have a place. I think that's a very, very reasonable thing to say. I think the data for MBPs uh, meditation, more specifically, or more even better said, mindfulness, mm -hmm. right? Not necessarily yoga, not necessarily exercise, not necessarily any of the other complementary and alternative medication strategies or alternatives to medications, but very specifically, mindfulness seems to have a place better than other alternative approaches that we've read about. Mm -hmm. Is that also a reasonable thing to say? Yes, I think so. Okay, so let's go ahead and leave that behind us. We're going to leave behind us that Western culture has a hard time being with itself. They'd rather be shocked and have <laughs> catheters with continuous blood draws hooked into them. They would rather stand in front of a group and give a speech. Mm -hmm. They would rather do all sorts of things than be mindful and yet um, I think some of the language we saw on mindfulness suggests that when we are mindful, we have greater mental flexibility to tackle the challenges. We don't get as riled by the things that life throws at us. Mm -hmm. right? And I, I kind of liked that, and I'm intrigued how accurate that is and would be very fascinated to see follow-up research on something that spoke to that conclusion. Right? Mm -hmm. I don't know that we have that with the outcomes we're measuring. Um, but where, where are we going next? Yeah, so I think there is a lot of things going on in this space, and one of the things that I did look at was the study that did um, that looked at the Calm app, um, which is a meditation app, and this study showed um, clinically significant improvement in depression and anxiety among individuals with sleep disturbances who use the Calm app, and to demonstrate it, I actually downloaded it, but then they asked me to pay seventy dollars. So I actually didn't do it. So maybe for the next podcast, I'll try and see. When you get your student loans paid off, you come back yeah. and we'll do a podcast on it then. How does that sound? Sounds great. Not before. Yep. But yeah. there's a lot of consumer apps that are really promoting uh, mindfulness-based therapies on their own individually, not in a clinical setting. So I think that's a very interesting realm to also explore, um, seeing how mindfulness is working in a non-clinical setting. I did look through that article, and um, as is commonly the case, I saw a couple of things about the way that blinding was set up that made me a little bit hesitant. Um, I think it was blinding, um, but overall, it's it's really an interesting area. I know that we've talked as I've talked with some students about having a podcast on. Uh, this new area of FDA approval. So there are things like medications, there are things like um, 
uh, what is it, medical foods, like uh, for the MTFR uh, gene deletion where um, methyl, uh, what is it, methylfolate is given to supplement people who can't convert to methylfolate from folic acid, if I remember correctly. Mm. Right, and so that's a medical food category. There are also some categories uh, with medical devices. And, and there's now this new category that's emerging with FDA approval for uh, medical software, essentially. And I'll be interested to see where that goes, and I think that that's what Calm was going for. I don't know that they have that approval yet, if I remember right, but I they I don't they think they have an FDA approval, but yeah, I'll take a look. Yeah, but we might put it in the liner notes if we uh, get there, yeah. as if it were an album. <laughs> Carl is looking at me strange. He's like, you know what liner notes are? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uri and I grew up in the 60s, so of course we know. Smart. <laughs> <laughs> Not much later in the 70s like you did. All right, uh, more seriously, what have we not talked about that the two of you would like to talk about? Um, I'm actually particularly interested in mindfulness-based practice in clinical settings in the pediatric population. Um, that's something that I would like to get a little bit more information on, just because I saw during my family medicine um, rotation, a lot of kids did come in with anxiety. Um, and so I wonder what I can do in the future um, to help them. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of scary. I know that a lot of primary care physicians, we, we are aware, I think if you've listened to the primary care physician apps, mm -hmm. or not apps, I'm sorry, podcasts that we've done in the past, I, I think we've been highly complimentary of the work that our, our primary care physicians have done in addressing mental health. I think that um, after the FDA put the label about suicidality with antidepressants on the package labeling that scared a lot of physicians away from providing care with antidepressants, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think there are a couple of things to take away from that. One is if we're nervous about using antidepressants, then how do we treat that? We don't just wait and watch, right? How do we intervene that can truly effectively change the situation? And it looked like, looks like mindfulness might be a strategy if something like anxiety is driving that. Yeah. Um, it might be one of the strategies that we've used, right? Yeah. Uh, the, other thing, uh, the other thing that I think is probably worth thinking about is there are only a couple of medications that do have FDA approvals for use in adolescence. We've talked about those, right? I think one of those is, Carl? Fluvoxamine for uh, what is it? Uh, adolescents with OCD. And I think I mentioned that I thought it was the only antidepressant that had that indication. And you were going to ask me about something that I was getting wrong, and you fluoxetine. Fluoxetine, which has uh, an indication for even younger children, right? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And I think it has it for both depression and for OCD. Right. Yeah. So, so knowing which which medications have that approval, I think, is important because you're not. Now off-label and having somebody in a courtroom asking you, can you explain to me why you didn't use a medication that's been approved by the FDA for this condition, right? Right. Even though we think of SSRIs as being the same, they're probably not, right? The data doesn't show that. And we think of, uh, anyway, uh, those risks might be one of the ways that we tackle that, right? Getting the right medication that has the right FDA approval and knowing who to refer to who's able to provide the kinds of treatments that are helpful. So I think that's a great idea. Other thoughts? Implementation, right? I mean, 
you can give someone a tool but actually having them use it if that makes any sense um, and, and that, that gets a little bit deeper but and more philosophical but um, even thinking about motivational interviewing or something like that maybe saying like yeah here is a tool that can be used for this so how do we get physicians to use it or how do we get patients to use it? <sighs> patients like i feel because so, like, you can give someone a tool and... so let me ask you a question mm -hmm. what percentage of your patients take all of their medications oh that's a great question for me it's a hundred percent right yes. <laughs> it's right. the other doctors who aren't talking to their patients enough whose numbers are lower right, right. correct oh my gosh Clearly. right so so we have a, a huge problem with collaboration in medicine mm -hmm. And perhaps this will be one of the future podcast uh, topic. So if anybody's listening to this, the idea of how collaborative or recovery-oriented treatments might have better outcomes, I think, is a great topic. And I also think one of the fascinating aspects of the future that Yuri was talking about is um, I, I think one of the selling points to the FDA has been, listen, we can sell the app and we can measure whether somebody's actually doing the work, right? We Got would be you. able to tell by heart rate changes if somebody's actually meditating and if they're doing it effectively. And then we can intervene to s when they're not. So that's that something that we can do that uh, therapists can't do. We can actually you know, tie our work to actual outcomes and, and we're more efficient that way and we're a better treatment that way. I, th I think that's where some of the, the medical software is going. Yeah, I think Google already has in place something like that. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of interesting, and there's all sorts of, of medical technologically assisted treatments, or technologically assisted medical treatments might be the way of saying it, I don't, I don't know, uh, where we're seeing the ability to tie adherence with the treatment regimen to use. So um, let's suppose I, I have a friend who has sleep apnea, and this friend, his sleep uh, CPAP machine, actually gets on a modem or on Wi-Fi or on satellite or something uh, all the time to tell my insurance providers and my therapist or my I'm sorry my friends uh, <laughs> physician whether he's using uh, that person is using his CPAP or not right right so we already have some of those things creeping into medicine mm -hmm. and I think that that uh, where that will go speaks somewhat to your question but I also think it speaks to the idea that how, how do we talk to patients about a changing landscape and and that kind of collaboration even on that level Great question. So, take home from the podcast, uh, Carl. You get to go first on this one. Uh, take home. Uh, mindfulness is a good practice. Um, it's not the be all end all, right? It's just a piece of it. So personally, I mean, that's my takeaway. Buspirone is the end all be all. Yes, correct. correct. Wait a minute. I thought every tool has a place. <laughs> it does. It does. <laughs> okay. So so it has a place. Um, a place where it could be used mm -hmm. and I think a couple of the articles made the case that clearly medications are not what everybody is looking for and medications don't work for everybody so what are the, what are the what are the tools we have and I think this is a very reasonable tool to reach for based on the evidence we read for today today great great take home uh, Yuri take home yeah so I think there's more studies that needs to come in order to prove or to show that this is an effective way um, of therapy for generalized anxiety disorder. Um, so, yeah, I'm waiting for it. I'm gonna be the next Miles. <laughs> all right, well, in all fairness, in all fairness, I think that the case for 
mindfulness is a stronger case for generalized anxiety disorder than yoga is for PTSD mm-hmm. by, by a good distance at this point. And now maybe that will change with more data, right? But I, th- I think there's a good case for it generally. And I think there's a pretty good case for it in a lot of specific circumstances. And so I'm on board with, I, I'm more on board with uh, mindfulness now mm-hmm. than I was two weeks ago when you started talking about the topic, right? I, I felt like the literature changed my viewpoint on this. Mm-hmm. I, I'm still left wishing that um, I was able to look at, quote, the perfect study, end quote, um, or I, at least studies that I think were stronger than most of the studies we looked at. I would have liked to have seen that. And yet, I think uh, there were a couple of studies out there that we weren't able to get our hands on that I think might demonstrate that, right? There are a, couple, there are a handful of studies over the last, I want to say, five or six years that I think are moving towards trial registration that have really good blinded approaches, that have good comparator arms, and then have all of the data collected in a way that takes us to a better place. And I think, I think part of the problem was we didn't have access to those articles. And part of the problem is there's not quite enough of that out there yet. So that, that I think, uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to say you're the next Miles because I, I think Miles had a really uphill battle on that one. <laughs> I'll have to text him and let him know that he was part of the podcast today. Uh, my take home is that, um, first of all, I, maybe one last question if I may, Yuri. You are somewhat different than many of the other students I've spoken to. Uh, a lot of other students will say, I'm very nervous about this. I've never done it before. I hate the sound of my voice. And you said something slightly different. You said, I'm very anxious and I'm looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Help me understand that. I guess I've been taking dialectical behavior therapy with the patients. So you put two opposite sen- um, sentences together to make it the truth. And they were both true. Were I both am true. very anxious. You can see my palm right now. They're like Niagara Falls, um, very sweaty, but uh, this is a topic that I was really interested in. So I had, I really, genuinely enjoyed doing the research, and I'm glad that I got to work this, work on this with both of you. So, oh, thank you very much. I, I enjoyed the topic a great deal. I thought you did a great job, and I don't think I have a single thing that I could have to have, add after that. And uh, on that note, team out. Team out. Team out. Team out.